1: wherever you get your podcasts. It's my only advanced reader copy I've ever had of any. <laughs> <laughs> How's it feel? It feels great. It feels like I'm famous. <laughs> hey,
0: readers, I'm Anne Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, Episode 168. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader, What Should I Read Next?, We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Today's guest, Tara Nichols, is giving herself an eagle-eye view of the last century's literary landscape. Her mission, which, as you will hear, she has been planning for quite a while, is to read one book published each and every year between 1920 and 2019. When we heard about Tara's challenge, we could not wait to have her on to talk more about it. This challenge brings with it a lot of important questions, things like, what is worth Tara's time? Is it better to read the big important book from a given year or the title she thinks that she will most enjoy? And the huge question she's hoping to answer after the year is over, has literature changed in all this time? And what does that mean for her? We're discussing all those things and more before getting to my challenge. I'm pitching three books worthy of adding to Tara's literary lineup, including a book that is considered by some to be the best mystery story ever written. I hope you're ready for a century of books. Let's get to it. Tara, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, well, I'm so excited to hear about this big, bold challenge you're taking on for yourself and the year to come. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Well, I live in the Phoenix area in Arizona, and I'm primarily a mom. I have two kids. And then I also teach part-time, but just one day a week. So most of my time is spent being a mom and reading books. And I like to say now managing a household rather than stay-at-home mom because my kids are in school now. So I feel like I do more household management.
0: That's a good way to put it. When you
1: teach, what do you teach? I teach science to fourth through eighth graders at a school for homeschool kids, which doesn't sound right, I know. but (laughs) it is. So it's a public school, but it's for homeschool kids who just come part-time. And so I teach science part-time.
0: Is science an area of particular interest for you or just something that you stumbled into?
1: It's more something I stumbled into. My passion is more teaching than science. I was just most qualified to teach science and I do really like science, but my passion is more teaching.
0: Okay. You're going to read a hundred books this year and I wanted to know how much we should be playing into that.
1: No, probably not at all. (laughs)
0: Tara, it's the new year and we're talking to readers this month who have taken on a variety of reading challenges for a variety of reasons in their own lives. And when you wrote in about your interesting and ambitious goal, I really wanted to hear more straight from the source.
1: My plan is to read one book published every year of the last hundred years. So that would be 1920 to 2019. The idea for it really just came, I just saw, I think, a list or an article that was called The Hundred Years of Books. And I believe it was talking about the 20th century. So the 1900s, the books that came out in that year. But when I saw that heading, I just got this kind of crazy idea. Like, I wonder if I can do this. I wonder if I can read a book published every year of the last 100 years. And so from there, I just started researching and looking at the years and just got really excited about it and went really deep into a spreadsheet. And so, so that's my plan is to read a book a year from the last 100 years starting in 1920.
0: How different will this be from your regular reading life? And what I mean by that is like how big a difference is this compared to previous years?
1: Pretty big. I mean I've always <laughs> <laughs> I've always read classics and older books, but 2018 was the first year I read over 100 books. 2017, I read 44 books. And then last year, I set a goal to read 50 books in the year, which I thought would be really difficult because I had never read that many books in a year. And so I basically stopped watching TV at the beginning of the year because I didn't know if I could do 50 books in a year. By about February, I was way ahead of schedule. But I just realized I wasn't really missing TV and I just wanted to read all the time. So in 2018, I read a lot of books. But before that, I had never read that many books. I was never quite so intentional about what I was picking. And so it's pretty different. Um, However, as a reader, I have always loved... Lists. I've always <laughs> loved to challenge myself. When I was a kid, so I grew up in Phoenix, and I don't know if you have been to Phoenix in the summer, but it is terrible. I mean, you basically can't go outside. It's like living in Minnesota in the winter. The only time you really go outside in Phoenix is to swim or to go somewhere that has air conditioning. Reading for me growing up in the summer was huge because there's nothing else to do. And I would look forward so much to the summer reading challenge at our library. I still have some of the lists that I filled out for those summer reading challenges at the library. So I've always loved lists. I've always loved sort of accomplishing things, but being this intentional about what I'm going to read is very new.
0: Are you saying you still have reading challenge lists from when you were a kid?
1: Yes. From probably about fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Yes.
0: What's it like to look at those now?
1: It's so fun. There's a lot of Judy Bloom on there and also a lot of books that I have not ever heard of since. (laughs) Do you recognize the titles? I do not, but I have Googled some of them and they were Apple paperbacks. Do you remember that? No. It must have been like Scholastic Book Fair kind of books, I think.
0: So we know where you got your books in fourth, fifth and sixth grades.
1: (laughs) Yes, the library and the Scholastic Book Fair for sure. Where do you keep those? I have a memory bin in my closet of like past like ticket stubs and things like that.
0: I love that the library book lists were worthy of being preserved. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. When you read over 100 books last year, give me a feel for your mix of new versus old titles. Because you're reading the whole spectrum in the year to come.
1: Yes. I read actually quite a lot of new things last year, which was kind of different for me. So usually when I do classics, I like Victorian um, era classics. So I won't be reading probably any Victorian stuff this year, which will be new for me. But I do quite a mix of old and new uh, because I haven't read as voraciously ever as I have in the last year. There are so many titles that... I have wanted to read for a long time. And so I'll just kind of pick what sounds good at the time. But there's a real mix of old and new. Something else about my reading is that I am the kind of person who likes to check off those books of classics and popular books. So I pick a lot of books, both old and new.
0: Okay. How long have you been planning this challenge? Since April. April. Since
1: April, has it been hard to not get started already? Kind of, but I love planning. So a lot of the joy for me is in the planning of it. Although there have been some books that I wanted to pick up, but... I really wanted to do it as a part of this challenge, mm-hmm. so so I haven't. Uh, I love the planning of it, so it hasn't been that hard not to start it. And I haven't been planning continuously from April. I got a, a list kind of, a tentative list kind of done, I would say by June, and then I've changed it a lot. It's been very fluid, but I haven't been working on it continuously. But I did start it back in April. Tell me about the spreadsheet you're keeping. Well, I just listed all of the years from 1920 to 2019. And I've always had like the kind of top book, the one that I thought I was going to read with the author, the number of pages some other kind of stats about each book, but primarily those things. And then I'll also make a list of books that I could also read if I decide I don't want to do that one or if I start reading that one and don't like it. But it's primarily just 1920 to 2019 and the the book that I think I'll probably read for that year with some other options put in. And then, of course, the page numbers, because I am not afraid of big books at all. But I want to be able to accomplish this. So I'm trying not to do books over like six or 700 pages so that, and then also some that are significantly shorter than that so Mm -hmm. that this is manageable. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you know what your page count is looking like right now?
1: So right now, my total pages for the year is planned at 31,729 pages, and that is 100 books. So that averages about 300 pages a book then. That's a lot of pages. Yeah, it is, but it's it's definitely manageable. I can do it. Okay,
0: so how many is that per day?
1: It's a little over 600 a week, a little less than 100 a day.
0: This is actually the first year that I'm tracking the number of pages I've read. I've never done that before. I may very well be reading that many pages, but I've never seen that number. Standing no. alone is something I've accomplished, and it just sounds really intimidating. Yeah, I think for sure you're reading that many pages. I mean, I think it has to be. I mean,
1: I think so, yes.
0: But it just sounds like so many.
1: Right, yeah. When you look at it at the beginning of the year, it it feels a little intimidating. But I think this year I read like over 40,000, 40,000 something pages. So okay. I can do this. So this is totally doable. It's totally doable. The thing I'm a little bit worried about is I typically like pretty heavy books, like heavy subject matter, Uh but I definitely sprinkle in a lot of books that are lighter and I have a lot of heavy books on this list. So I may have to, and maybe you can help with that as well. So I think I may have to switch out some heavy ones with some lighter ones to make it really more doable.
0: That's good to know because, uh, we're talking about 100 years of books, and I wasn't sure quite how to think about what to recommend for you. So mm-hmm. I set myself a little framework, but I may veer from it if what you're looking for is a touch of lightness. Tara, if heavy reading is the part that kind of intimidates you or that has you concerned about your project, what's something you're really excited about, about your century reading challenge?
1: One of the things I'm really excited about is just to see how literature has kind of changed in the last hundred years. I'm not reading in order, so I'm, I'm hoping that I can still kind of see these patterns. But the way that literature and things that have remained have kind of changed over the last hundred years. I'm also really excited just to read these books that I've been wanting to read for a really long time and just haven't gotten to because – maybe they're not as shiny and pretty as some of the new books that come out. These books that have been on my radar for a long time, I'm really excited to see if I'm gonna love them and if they're going to kind of hit me the way they've hit people over the last hundred years. I mean, some of these books have remained for a really long time, but I just haven't gotten to them. I'm the kind of person who likes to check things off a list. So that's part of the fun for me too. Just see if I can do it. But as far as the books go, I have a lot of books on this list that I'm really excited about. I also have some that I'm not that excited <laughs> about. So no. Well, there were... So some years were really easy. Goodreads has lists of the top 200 books published in that year. And I think they're just the books that are popular on Goodreads Mm -hmm. for each published year. And then I also looked at Wikipedia for books published in each year. And so some lists I looked at and I just knew the book right away, a book that I've known about or an author that I've loved. Other books were hard because there were a lot of books that sounded really good and it was hard to narrow it down. But the hardest one were years where I looked at these lists of 200 books and not a single one sounded good to me. So there are some years where I did pick a book, but uh, that I'm not super excited about. So that's kind of how I put the list together and where we're at with it. Interesting. Do you know the years that were harder? Yes. What are they? I think probably one of the hardest ones was 1949. And right now I have picked Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, which is a short story. I know it's creepy and I don't like creepy stuff. So that one was hard. 1930 was hard. Actually, 1986, for some reason. And that was the, the year that the Babysitter's Club came out, which I love. But I don't know that I want to include that as a part of this challenge. 1975. More recent years were easier. Kind of the ones in the middle, I think, were some of the harder ones.
0: Sarah, what are some of the ones that you have been just itching to read since
1: April? Kind of the top one, and it's actually one that I'm reading right now is 2017's Pachinko. That's one that I bought when it was cheap on Kindle earlier in 2018, and I it's been hard for me to resist reading it, so that's why I picked it up kind of first this year. Also, I've never read Kate Morton, and I've wanted to, so I'm gonna. So what I have on my list is The Forgotten Garden, which is 2008, and then Atonement is one that's 2001. That's one that's been on my radar kind of for a long time and I just haven't picked it up. And then the last one I'll mention is, and this one I've heard you talk about on the podcast quite a bit, is Brideshead Revisited from 1945. That's one that I've wanted to read for a long time. And so that's one I'll probably pick up pretty soon.
0: That sounds like a lot of fun. I'd love to dive in and talk about your books. Okay. Tara, you know how this works. You are going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now, and we will talk about what you may enjoy reading next by publication year.
1: Yes, of course. So the first book I love that I want to talk about is a book you may have heard of. It is A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, and it's really important for me to talk about this book on your podcast because I think I've listened to each episode, to every episode of your podcast. As far as I know, no one has picked a Dickens book as one of their loves, which breaks my heart because I love Dickens so much. So I might be the first, maybe the second, but I want to talk about Dickens. So A Tale of Two Cities is probably my favorite book of all time. It takes place in London and Paris before and during the French Revolution. And prior to the book's action, a French doctor is wrongly imprisoned in the Bastille. And then as the book begins, he's released from prison and reunited with his grown daughter and brought to London. It's really, I mean, it's his story. It's his daughter's story. There's several other really important characters, but it's primarily, a story of vengeance and redemption and I think I love books about redemption and this one really really stands out for me
0: you know I know you like the behind the scenes we do keep a spreadsheet of all guest picks and my recommendations on what should I read next but we don't do it by author I could go through line by line and see if there (laughs) is in fact a Dickens mention or not
1: I mean, each time I listen to it, I wait to see. It has been mentioned as a hate. But
0: Well, I'm glad you could be first with a favorite book of all time. Definitely a great entree to the podcast for Mr. Mm-hmm. Charles Dickens.
1: Yes. Tara, tell me about another book you love. This was probably my favorite book that I read in two thousand eighteen. And that's The Heart's Invisible Furies by John Boyne. And I really, really just love this book. Um have you read it? I
0: have. I read it at the beach last summer. Oh okay. summer before last.
1: I don't know if I want to say a whole lot about the plot, but it's the main character is Cyril Avery. I think I'm saying that right. And each of the novels really kind of long chapters takes place every seven years. So they're all seven years apart, starting in 1945, right before he was born. It all takes place in Ireland. I really love books where you get to walk with a character through their whole life and I really rooted for this character so much. And he made some really terrible choices, but I still always rooted for him. It's really beautifully written, um, heartbreaking, but hopeful. And I, I really, really loved it.
0: That book also has a really interesting structure.
1: Yeah, it really
0: does. Is that something you find you typically enjoy in your books, Tara?
1: Yeah, I think so. I don't know that it has to have an interesting structure, but I do like when it does. I will say though, I don't typically like weird books, mm-hmm. like books that are really out there, but interesting structure I do like. I, I do know I, how do I say this without sounding pretentious? I like <laughs> I, I like books that are really well-written. Um, it's hard for me to enjoy a book. I don't know if the prose isn't good Like if I ever roll my eyes at something when I'm reading a book, it's hard for me to enjoy it. Yeah. And I feel like in this book, he, I mean, I, I feel like it's almost a perfect book the way that it's done. That's high praise. It is one of my favorites (laughs) for a reason.
0: Tara, what did you choose for your third favorite?
1: Okay. So my third favorite is a nonfiction book and it is The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. I know that this was talked about fairly recently on your podcast, but I think it was Tracy. And I was so happy to hear somebody mention it because it is so good. And have you started it yet?
0: I've checked it out of the library.
1: Okay. I'm on my way. <laughs> yeah, I know Tracy gave you a push. I'm going to give you another push. Well, thank you. Because I've actually checked it out of the library before and returned it unread. So I, I need a push. It is really big, although there's a fairly big note section in the back. So it's not quite as big as it looks, uh, unless you read all the notes, which would probably be strange. But this is the story of the great migration of Black Americans from the South to cities in the North and West during the Jim Crow years. I was a sociology major in college, so I really am drawn to books about social justice, about racial justice and history, but this book really, really stands out. It is so good. I don't know how else to say this. I think this sounds kind of cheesy, but... The way that she writes, like, I just feel the love that she had for her subject matter and for her research and her writing as I read it. And I don't know that I have ever felt that way about a nonfiction book before. I know that sounds kind of strange, but I could just feel the time and energy and care she gave to researching and telling this story. One of the things that she does is each either section or chapter starts with an epigraph, a quote, and I could just feel how carefully she chose each of those and how well it encapsulated each chapter. And I just loved it. It is a really big book and it's a difficult story too. I mean, she tells Mm -hmm. some things in it that are really, really hard to hear about, but it didn't feel like work to read it. It's just so beautifully told. Honestly felt like a kind of perfect reading experience because it was beautifully told. It was engaging. And I learned a ton. I mean, growing up white in Arizona, like I didn't know anything about the Great Migration, really nothing. And I knew kind of very little about the Jim Crow years too. I mean, we learned about the civil rights movement, but we didn't ever really learn why the civil rights movement was essential. We didn't really learn all of the terrible things that led to it. And so I just really, really appreciated this book a lot. That does make me want to read it. Okay, good. (laughs) It really, it it looks intimidating.
0: Well, that's why I haven't picked it up because that's quite an investment of reading time. I know that I'll be glad that that's how I spent my pages. Mm -hmm. And yet Mm -hmm. it does make it hard to get started.
1: I mean, it's hard to fit in my bag. Right. That's true. That's true. Well, I, when I read it, I read it on Kindle. I typically do that with bigger books because then it doesn't feel big (laughs) because it feels the same as any other book. That is something that helps me, but no matter what, it's worth it. And it really is to the kind of book that you could read another book at the same time, you know, read a chapter of this and Mm -hmm. take a little bit. It's not one that that you have to power through, but it's so great. I think that you'll really love it.
0: I'm glad to hear that. Tara, tell me about a book that wasn't for you.
1: I really did kind of hate this book a little bit. (laughs) And there aren't a lot of books that I hate, but I really didn't like The Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. I read it quite a long time ago, but I still remember it fairly well because I really didn't like it. How long
0: ago did you read it? Because I remember reading this as I think a senior in high school and I really loved it. I hadn't read a lot of substantial historical fiction, but I remember just being totally sucked in and being obsessed with how they built castles. But I don't know that I would trust my 17 year old self. So what was your (laughs) reading experience like?
1: Okay, I will say there was one thing I did like, and that was what you mentioned was learning about the building of the first Gothic cathedrals. And it was like during the Middle Ages. That part I really did enjoy, but I hated a lot of things. So, so the first thing, when I read a book, even when it's fiction, I wanted to feel true to life. And there were a lot of times in this book where I rolled my eyes because I just felt like the action was absurd and inauthentic. There were things that happened where I was just like, that could not happen. That is not realistic. So that was one thing. Another thing I really didn't like was the rises and falls of the story felt very predictable to me. So basically something really terrible would happen to one of the protagonists. And so then you knew something great was about to happen to them. And then something great would happen and the narrative of the story would be like, okay, and now everything's going to be fine. Then you knew that something really, really bad was going to happen to them. And this book is... What, like 900 and something pages? And so I felt like this just happened over and over again, and it just got really exhausting. And then the last thing, I was just not okay with the graphic violence and rape in the novel. I don't mind books where really bad things happen, but describing a rape in every graphic detail just felt completely unnecessary to me. And the violence as well, it was just too much. I typically don't like. Books with much graphic content in it, like that. And there was a lot in it for me. This is one book where I thought about putting it down many times, but I think so many people loved it that I thought, okay, no, it's going to get better. It's going to be worth it. And then I got to the last page and I wanted to throw it across the room. I was, <laughs> I was mad at the book. I was mad at myself for not abandoning it. So, yes, that was one pretty extreme reading experience I had.
0: I remember none of that. I just remember okay. they were building cathedrals. Yes. And it was really impressive.
1: And that part I actually really did like. I thought it was so interesting. And you could tell he had done his research about building the cathedrals. So that part I liked.
0: And I think I remember some sleeping in the woods. Yeah. But that's it.
1: And more than just sleeping in the woods. (laughs) Don't remember that either. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I keep thinking that is a book I'd like to revisit. If I do, we'll talk after Tara.
1: Okay. Okay. Yes. That would be interesting. What are you reading right now? Okay, so right now I'm reading three books and they are all a part of the challenge. So like I mentioned, I'm reading Pachinko. I'm about halfway done with that and I'm really enjoying it. I'm also, And that's 2017. I'm also reading um, Barack Obama's Dreams from My Father and that's 1995. So I read Michelle Obama's new book at the end of 2018 and I loved it so much. And she does talk about when Barack was writing this book. So it inspired me to finally read it. Oh, that's fun yeah so unfortunately I wanted to do the audiobook because I like doing some nonfiction books like that mem- mm-hmm. memoirs and nonfiction on audio and mm-hmm. I started it and then I realized it was abridged and I just like I don't know I'm too much of a perfectionist to account an abridged book as one on the list so I switched to oh, no <laughs> the print version I wasn't too far in though I was just realizing like wait. This book is supposedly 400 pages, but there's only nine hours of audio. That didn't feel right. So I looked it up and it was abridged. And then the last one I'm reading right now is actually my 2019 book, The Louder Song by Aubrey Sampson, kind of a Christian nonfiction book. The subtitle is Listening for Hope in the Midst of Lament. And it's a really beautiful nonfiction book about kind of grief and suffering When the answers aren't easy and God sometimes feels far. So I'm not too far into that one, but I'm really, really loving it so far.
0: So you clearly picked something that was published very early in the year for this category.
1: Well, not exactly. It comes out in February. Okay. So I have an advanced reader copy. It's my only advanced reader copy I've ever had of any. (laughs) How's it feel? It feels great. It feels like I'm famous.
0: (laughs) All right, Tara, as for what you'd like to be different in your reading life, you've got a whole different year ahead.
1: Yeah, so I don't think anything else other than this, (laughs) except for, I mean, I always like to try and read fairly diversely, not as far as genre, but as far as author. I think I'm pretty happy with the books I like. I don't feel like I need to go really far outside of the things I like, but it is important to me to not just read white people.
0: Gotcha. What I tried to do to break off an appropriately sized piece of this challenge for our discussion today instead of 100 years of books mm-hmm. was to tackle the beginning of the early decades. So I looked at 1920, 1930, 1940. What do you have for those decades right now?
1: I've only finished one book this year but it was my 1920. So Oh, what was it? The Mysterious Affair at Styles by Agatha Christie.
0: I was wondering about Christie for you. And what
1: did you think? I liked it. It's the first one by her I've ever read. I'm always afraid of mystery because I don't like graphic violence. And so I never know if it's going to be okay or not but this was totally fine the the mystery was a poisoning so there was no violence in it at all and i really liked it it i don't know how it compares to her other books because mm-hmm. i'm not a mystery reader but i was really engaged the whole time it was a short book and i was guessing the whole time and i was always wrong which i think is supposed to how it's supposed to work when you read her mm-hmm. so yeah i really liked it but as far as some of the other books from that decade i have a couple ones from willa cather mm-hmm. I've read O Pioneers and My Antonia by her that I love. So I thought I'd do some of her other ones. I have Virginia Woolf in there as well. That's a decade where I can kind of take or leave some of the ones I have listed. Mm-hmm. I thought kicking off your challenge with The Age of Innocence,
0: if you hadn't read it yet, which, I mean, we all went to high school.
1: Right. Well, I didn't read that one in high school. I read Ethan Frome in High School, but Mm -hmm. I have read The Age of Innocence and I loved it. And when I looked at 1920 was one of my hardest years because that was the only book I was really interested in. And I had already (laughs) read it. Yeah. I mean, I have one for 1930, but I'm not super excited about it. So.
0: What's the one you have for 1930?
1: The Maltese Falcon. Oh, okay.
0: You could go a darker direction, although it is full of black humor. And you could read As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner. Do you know this one?
1: I I know of it, of course. I've read The Sound and the Fury, but that's the only thing I've read by him.
0: I think this one narratively feels really different to me. First, I have to start with the backstory because this is a book where the story behind the story is as good as the novel itself and also much shorter to get through. So before he wrote this, Faulkner said he set out deliberately to write a tour de force. He wanted to write something that if he didn't write any other books, if he hadn't written any other books before, this one could stand as his only work and he'd be proud of it and he would be remembered. Like that's what he wanted to do. Wow. And he also said that before he ever put pen to paper and wrote the first words, he knew exactly how it would end and what the last word would be.
1: The last word? The last word. Oh my goodness. Okay, that's intriguing.
0: So if that's not strange enough... He claims he wrote it from midnight to four o'clock in the morning in six weeks time and that he didn't change a single word when he was done.
1: What? That is crazy. Okay, I'm really intrigued.
0: It is true that his editor hardly changed the manuscript at all. He did change it a little. Also, the typescript indicates that it was actually eight weeks, not six. But that is still amazing.
1: Right, yeah, absolutely.
0: He did not have any... uh, his self-confidence issues, apparently. <laughs> right. Yes. But about the actual story, it is once again set in Faulkner's world of Batapa County, Mississippi. And like much of his other literature, this is narrated by a plethora of characters. There are 15 okay. different voices here. Oh, wow. And the matriarch of the family is dying. Everyone is on the journey. They're hot and tired and emotionally exhausted, and they're all telling their take on the story and the family. So there's 15 narrators, but there are only 59 chapters. So you bounce around a lot. And you also said that you were really interested in seeing how literature has changed over the last 100 years. mm mm-hmm. This is a book that is consistently cited as one of the best novels of the 20th century. Mm doesn't necessarily mean it will be to your taste. Saying that as someone who read it finally a few years ago, but also for the massive influence it had over the fiction that came after. So I think in a project like this, there's an argument to be made there. Not like there weren't other books published in 1930, but Faulkner's got some reasons.
1: I've been scared to do another Faulkner. I didn't love The Sound and the Fury, but I liked it. But it was so hard. Is this one as hard as The Sound and the Fury? No, because it's shorter. Okay, there you go. <laughs> is it stream of consciousness like like The Sound and the Fury is? Do you know?
0: I really felt like The Stream of Consciousness in The Sound and the Fury was all over the place. Mm-hmm. And one narrator especially was very hard to follow. And Faulkner liked it that way. Okay, Yes. I feel like while it's not always easy to follow in As I Lay Dying, Faulkner isn't reaching quite as much with The Voice.
1: Okay. I don't
0: think it's quite as hard to follow.
1: All right. Well, I'm excited. I mean, like I said, I liked checking things off and this is one that's like always on lists of best books, but I've been intimidated by trying more Faulkner. So, And it's like you said, it's not very long. That is helpful to you. So yeah, I'm excited to try that one.
0: I do think it's worth pointing out there's a difference between books that are enjoyable and books that are important. Not always, but sometimes. I agree with that. If you wanted to go in a different direction for 1930, especially because you said that you are afraid of the amount of heaviness that might be Mm -hmm. here (laughs) on this list of books that are important, a lot of times that there's really serious subject matter there, and it is heavy and hard to read. In 1930, the first Nancy Drew mystery was published. Oh, okay. The Secret of the Old Clock by Carolyn Keene.
1: I'm sure I read that when I was a kid, but I would not have read it since then.
0: Well, and I think it would be a different experience to read it now, especially because as a kid, you probably read about the gentler Nancy Drew and not the original.
1: Oh, I don't know. Is it like the, the, are they different than like the blue and yellow copies? Do you know what I'm talking about? They probably are. Here's another fun fact.
0: Devoted fans... Of Nancy Drew may already know that Carolyn Keene was actually the pen name for a whole group of ghostwriters. Oh, I didn't know that. Hmm. Yes, a whole group of them. The first ghostwriter was the one who wrote this first novel and who really shaped the Nancy Drew character because of her early work was Mildred Wirt Benson. And she wrote the original version of this first installment when she was just in her early 20s. Oh, wow. I know. So this was published in 1930. The book got a major update, which really toned down the Nancy Drew character, made her a little softer around the edges, a little gentler in 1959. And that's the version that most of our contemporaries would have read. Okay, I didn't know that. For this challenge, I would strongly recommend that you track down the actual 1930 version. Yeah, that's really interesting. Obviously, Nancy Drew was important culturally. There were slews of mysteries and tons of... Readers like our age and our mother's age and even our grandmother's age were hooked on those books Mm -hmm. as a kid. And even the Smithsonian did this great piece. I can't remember if it was about Benson or if it was about the Nancy Drew series itself, but it said that Supreme Court justices like Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor have all said that they loved Nancy Drew as a kid and she was a huge influence in their lives.
1: That's so cool. I love that. Yes.
0: So if you wanted to go lighter and read something important, but also fun, The Secret of the Old Clock may be a good pick for 1930. Okay. Okay. Continuing on the breezier reading track. Okay. One of my favorite old books that I love was published in 1938. I don't know what you have on your list for right now, but Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day by Winifred Watson could be a really fun one for this year.
1: Okay. Yeah, I have not read that. And that is not what I, I think I might've had that as an alternate. (laughs) So, but that sounds great to do something lighter for that year. What do you
0: have right now for 1938?
1: I have Our Town. By Thornton Wilder. Which is a wonderful pick. Okay. But I understand how you don't
0: need to just pick out the best book for the year, but also balance Mm -hmm. your whole year of reading.
1: Yeah, no, this is, I mean, it's, this is just me doing this. So I get to do whatever I want. (laughs) I
0: just said it was light. So I do need to warn you, there's some humor and comments in this book that are racially and ethnically common to the time, but just sound terrible to modern ears as they should. So when I say I love and adore it, I definitely need to give a disclaimer there. Okay. It's set in the 1930s in Britain and it's a Cinderella-ish kind of story a placement agency sends the unemployed Miss Pettigrew of the title to the wrong address. So instead of showing up at her job to be a governess for bratty children, like she's expecting, she's accidentally sent to be the assistant for a glamorous nightclub singer. So if you've seen the movie, you're probably picturing Amy Adams like rushing around um, in her cocktail dress right now, but the book is better than the movie. Not always, okay. but definitely in this case. So Hour by hour, she just gets into scrape after scrape, and most of them have to do with men. For once, Miss Pettigrew is appreciated and seen as wise and helpful and fun, and she just gets to kind of let loose for the day in a way that Mm. she hasn't before and embrace a different kind of life. And it's not the same as reading Our Town tone-wise. It might be (laughs) a welcome breather in the midst of your serious literature.
1: Yeah, no, that sounds great. And it, I really do love a book with a fun premise. Like last year I read To All the Boys I've Loved Before and mm-hmm. that just has such a fun premise. And it, this sounds like a really, just a neat premise as well. And on that happy
0: note, let's go to 1940. okay. You are very interested in social justice and racial justice, especially in history. So I'm wondering if you've read The Heavy Hitter, Native Son by Richard Wright.
1: I haven't. I almost read it last year and then I got scared. (laughs) I was worried it might have some violence in it that would be hard for me. Do you know about that? Oh, I know. And it does.
0: Okay. (laughs) I don't know if you're a skimmer through those scenes or if you just want them to not exist. And I completely understand why those scenes are there. You Mm -hmm. know, it makes sense. They belong in the book, but that doesn't mean that they're not very difficult to read, especially for readers who know themselves to be sensitive.
1: Yeah, I'm not critical of authors putting violence in when it feels necessary to do. Mm -hmm. I just, my brain really like latches on to disturbing imagery and it's hard for me to get it out of my head. So that's why I was nervous about that one
0: so readers who want to read an excellent book uh, a novel that really sets out to do what it's trying to do and also incredibly important historically and incredibly timely today native son by richard wright is a good one but yes it definitely has scenes that might not be able to unstick okay also in 1940 though is how to read a book by mortimer adler
1: oh i've never heard of that one really
0: Yeah. That kind of makes me happy because he can be kind of snobby. But this, (laughs) again, culturally was and continues to be a really significant book. Even now, when you see bestseller lists broken down by category, top books Mm -hmm. and books and reading, How to Read a Book by Mordler Adler will be near the top. And it Mm. was published for the first time in 1940. Okay. This book is, as the title suggests, about... Approaching the books you read as a reader. So this could be a meta pick for your challenge here. Okay. It's a little bit philosophy, why you should read. It's a little bit how to, how to read. And he has his steps that he thinks readers should follow on approaching books and how to assess them. Um, And he has questions that he advises Mm -hmm. all readers ask when they approach works of literature, like, is it true? And what does it matter? I think he actually says, what of it? But this also might be something a little different from what you're reading. And we're talking about how literature has changed. It might be interesting to look at what readers were told to do in 1940 to get more out of the books they read and hmm. see how that's different from today. Again, I do think he can be kind of snobby. So take that into consideration when you think about whether to take this or leave it. But okay. this definitely has been hugely influential over the course of the last 80 plus years now.
1: And I wonder if it will help me kind of think about how literature has changed as I read the books too. Do you think it might help me kind of think about that? I think it'd be
0: fascinating to get an original 1940 version with those recommended reading lists and reading tests in the back. That would be interesting. They do update this every so often, but yes, I do think it would give you an interesting
1: perspective.
0: Okay, Tara, finally, you said that 1949 was a tricky year. Yes. Tell me again what you have.
1: I have The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. An
0: amazing story. I can't believe you weren't assigned that in seventh or eighth grade, but yes, definitely creepy. You will see The Lottery references everywhere okay. once you've read that story and know what to look for. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that would be amazing to read, but you're so right that it is deeply unsettling. Yeah. I'm wondering if you've read a gentler but also culturally significant. If everybody had a dollar for uh, every time I said culturally significant during this episode, seriously, (laughs) it's by Josephine Tay. It's called The Daughter of Time. Is this one you know?
1: Nope. I haven't heard of the book or the author.
0: Really? Okay. The title comes from an old proverb that states that truth is the daughter of time. This short novel was written in the heyday of British mysteries, and some critics call it the best mystery story ever written.
1: Really? I know.
0: How's that for a teaser?
1: (laughs) Seriously. First, the drawbacks.
0: Well, some people think it's boring. That's one. Because it doesn't read like your contemporary thrillers, not by a long shot.
1: I don't think that will bother me. I read a lot of books that other people think are boring, and then I love them. I think that's okay. It is also the fifth book
0: in her Inspector Alan Grant series. So you absolutely can jump in here, and readers do all the time. Purists think that you can't truly appreciate the man and his character if you don't start with book one. But that's a lot more pages than you're reading for your challenge. Because The Daughter of Time, it's skinny. It's only like 200 pages. Okay. So now Inspector Grant, who if you have read the whole series, you've gotten to know for four books, is stuck in the hospital with a broken leg and is completely bored because he's used to being on the beat. And now he is laid up. You know, as I'm describing this plot to you, it sounds really improbable, but you got to, <laughs> you need a premise to get you telling the story you want to tell. Mm-hmm. And Tay's premise is that Alan Grant lying in the hospital becomes intrigued, more like consumed by this portrait of Richard III, who historically we believe, committed heinous crimes against his own family. He killed his brother's children. Oh, wow. This is intense. This is Shakespearean. Grant is looking at this portrait that he has near him at the hospital and is like, I don't know, with a face like this, could he really have committed that atrocious act? I don't think he could have. And again, like the violent crime he's solving happened a really long time ago and does not occur in the pages of the book in any more graphic form than I just described you. Okay. Like no more detail has gone into. And I know that that may be a factor for you. So he becomes completely obsessed in part because he has nothing else to do and begins to pick apart the case, looking for another explanation.
1: That sounds really interesting. Yeah. I'm very intrigued. 200 pages, 1949. Yeah, I think for sure that will replace the lottery. Maybe I'll do the lottery someday, maybe not.
0: That's okay. And I need to hear if you
1: think it's boring or not. Okay, I will definitely let you know. I
0: mean, some people love it, but that is a common criticism leveled against it.
1: But some people say it's what, the best mystery ever, or the best British mystery ever? The best mystery story ever written. I mean, that's that sounds promising at least. And here's the thing, I'm not a mystery reader. So- I don't have much to compare it to. And so I think that can maybe kind of be helpful too.
0: And finally, this is already on your radar, but I have to share because atonement was one that I thought of as being similar in some ways to Boyne's and has a lot in common with A Tale of Two Cities. So I would really love to see that on your reading list. Listeners may think, is she out of her mind? But I really think the way that it takes a long sweep of events, so you can very clearly see how what happens when a character is 13 affects what happens when they are much, much older, many decades later. There's a case of mistaken identity that plays out differently, but has life-changing ramifications for multiple characters and the way that the story plays with class in a way that Dickens
1: does. Yeah, I've been really excited about this one for a while and I, for whatever reason, I just haven't gotten to it. So this was one that I put on early on on my list and it was like not an option to change it. I'm like, I'm going to read Atonement (laughs) this year. So I didn't really even look at anything else from 2001 because I knew I wanted to read this one, but I didn't know much about it. So I'm really excited that you think it's similar to the ones that I like.
0: It is definitely not a read-alike, but it does have those elements make you in plays with the concept of a novel, like what it means to tell a story in a way that can be uh, fun, thought-provoking, or infuriating. This story would be an excellent book club selection because it makes a lot of readers very, very angry. Oh, really? Know that going in and make sure you have somebody you can talk about it with when you're done.
1: I think I have heard that the end is polarizing. That's putting it mildly. Okay. But yes. <laughs> okay, great. We're going to
0: leave atonement out of it. As for the rest of the books we talked about today, and they were as I lay dying, The Secret of the Old Clock, Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day, Native Son, how to Read a Book, and The Daughter of Time. Is that enough? You're reading a 100, so we're just getting started. <laughs> yes. Tara, of those books, what do you think you'll read next?
1: Well, I think I will definitely add several of them to the list. I think I might do The Daughter of Time first. That sounds intriguing to me, and, and especially because I wasn't excited about my 1949 pick, I'm excited about that one. So other than Atonement, I think, which I think I'll read this month, <laughs> uh, I think The Daughter of Time will be next.
0: Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. And what your verdict is on it. Okay, great. And this has been a blast. Thank you so much for talking books with me
1: today. Yes, thank you so much.
0: Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tara today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Tara and let her know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 168. That's 168. And it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Next week, I'm chatting with best of bookish friends, Femi and Erica. Together, they run a book club that focuses on reading books by women of color and enacting social change with their reading lives. I love the story of how this episode came to What Should I Read Next? It is a podcast first for us, and I cannot wait for you to hear this. Here's a sneak peek.
1: Why don't we just start like a
0: cool book club where we can get together, but also invite people we secretly want to be friends with or get closer with and also invite people that we know are also reading and are interested and and see who will show up. Put it together, make fun flyers,
1: treat it like Mm -hmm. a little fun potluck party and go from there.
0: I would say that in both of our professional lives, you know, we're trying to live our values in our work. You know, Femi's work is a social work with teen parents and I work closely with the labor movement, trying to organize workers who are facing horrendous conditions on the job. There's a lot of hurt that we see that our communities and clients are experiencing. I thought that this book club could really be a place where we can create space for love and community and safety. If you're on Twitter, let me know there, at Ann Bogle. That is Anne with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Anne Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Get all the latest What Should I Read Next news and updates by signing up for our free weekly newsletter at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support it, please share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or grab yourself a copy of my new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, for yourself, or for a friend thanks to the people who make the show happen what should i read next is produced by brenna frederick with sound design by kellen Pekacek. readers that's it for this episode thanks so much for listening and as reiner maria rilke said ah how good it is to be among people who are reading happy reading everyone
1: On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Let Mysteries at
0: Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories, Like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.